Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On today's program, we start with a conversation with Hisham Salem, Stanford University, about his new book, Classless Politics, Islamist Movements, the Left and Authoritarian Legacies in Egypt. It's published by, by Columbia University Press. Then we check in with Jeff Colgan, Brown University and Director of the Climate Solutions Lab, uh, to talk about OPEC Plus and the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Finally, we talked to Aura Zekeli and Devorah Manikin about their uh, chapter in the book, The Political Science of the Middle East, which focuses on militaries and armed groups. Thanks so much for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Hasham Salam of Stanford University's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. He's the author of the new Columbia University Press book, Classless Politics, Islamist Movements, the Left, and Authoritarian Legacies in Egypt. Hasham, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. A pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about this book and kind of where it came from and where you see the major contributions. Let me just start off uh, this little anecdote. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was joking with me and told me that the best way to describe this book is Egyptian politics, the prequel, uh, which I actually didn't like because, uh, in part because it sounds very pretentious and also very, very nerdy. Uh, <laughs> but eventually it, um, it did occur to me, Mark, that this humor title captures something about this book. And that is the idea that to understand the contemporary realities uh, of Egyptian politics, we need to look back. Uh, we need to dig into how historical legacies from previous eras have shaped the realities we've uh, faced in more recent times. I think in the, and you know this, of course, uh, the immediate aftermath of the January 25th revolution and, and the Arab uprisings more generally, there was uh, this tendency to get lost in the contemporary moment and um, the vast sense of open-endedness it evoked. It was easy to get lost in all of this. Uh, it was easy to look at that era of Egypt as this clean break from the past and to assume that new politics were emerging on a clean slate. Uh, I think by now, many scholars have been taking the long view with a lot of interest in how previous authoritarian eras have shaped the contemporary moment. Of course, without having to descend to vulgar determinism, which we sometimes encounter, this was bound to fail, this was bound to succeed. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I see my modest book as my own uh, attempt to contribute to that conversation and advance that effort. And in a way, this is a big part of what the book is focusing on, Mark. It's, um, it's pondering how we arrived at the, a reality in which class politics and the left are more often than not sidelined in national politics and maybe even sidelined in our scholarly conversations. Uh, but in national politics, what is it sidelined by? It's sidelined by conflicts over national identity, frequent spats between Islamist currents and their adversaries, um, which includes the left, but it's not limited to the left. Uh, so it's sidelined by what I sum up in the title uh, using the term classless politics. So um, in doing so, the book is moving beyond the choices that contemporary political actors and voters are making for, for example, this is not a story about how Islamists organize in a given election season, how the regime engineers laws and rules, how voters behave, how, or uh, even how the left is uh, currently failing in building a popular following or putting together a, a viable strategy. Instead, the book looks at how choices the ruling elites made several decades ago, how these have influenced the direction of politics in the contemporary moment, uh, and uh, also very relevantly how this occurred in unintended and counterintuitive ways. So um, in more concrete uh, language, I think we can say that this book tells us how Sadat's policies towards the Islamist movement in the 1970s, coupled with Abdel Nasser's policies toward the communist movement in the prior decade, uh, the combination of these two, it had an enduring uh, impact on Egyptian politics, an impact that pronounces itself in um, classless politics. Um, for the Egypt to file audiences uh, or 
uh, for the Egypt fans, as uh, my wonderful colleague Mona Robeshi tends to call them. Uh, I think this book is my modest attempt to help um, ongoing efforts to bring the left back into our research agenda uh, and um, uh, join forces with uh, scholars who are trying to provide some critical insight into what many of us view as the tragedy of Egyptian left. Um, for scholars of political Islam, go ahead, Mark. Well, I was going to say one of the things which is so interesting about the book is that you really do uh, reconstruct uh, the, the building of, of an entire political field. It's not just a story of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's not just a story of the left, but it's more of a comprehensive look at how the political field was structured over time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Mark. And um I mean, of course, the book is there as a complement to the incredible body of work uh, that's been produced on the Islamist advantage, uh, but it's really an invitation to perhaps unpack the question of the Islamist advantage a little bit uh, by further digging into who is at the disadvantage and why, which obviously speaks to the argument that you cannot understand why Islamist currents tend to dominate politics without understanding first the historical evolution of the left, which by the way, happens to be a story in which political Islam itself is uh, a major protagonist. And you also cannot understand it uh, without uh, looking into the political economy of authoritarianism, uh, which is uh, very much at the heart of how Islamist currents have developed in Egypt as uh, this book argues. So this book is, in some ways showing that if you don't piecemeal these lines of inquiry, when you study them together in a more um, configurational approach, if mm -hmm. you will, uh, you gain a lot of insight. But of course you gain a lot of insight at the cost of having to write a book that's pushing 500 pages. <laughs> Well, why don't we start with maybe that political economy and the configuration, which is, of course, the shift from Nasser to Sadat, which is, you know, kind of the the central the central point, a central focal point for you in terms of how the field shifts. So why don't you talk us through this a little bit and how that leads to Sadat making the choices that he makes? Yes, I mean, uh, obviously, one of the things that is really um apparent in the book's narrative uh, is the fact that Sadat's choices and policies, uh, especially as they relate to uh, the economy, as they relate to dominant social pact that emerged under Gamal Abdel Nasser, um, that uh, it didn't emerge out of vacuum. Uh, there was a prelude to it under uh, Abdel Nasser's final uh, decade in office, which speaks to the structural realities that guided Sadat. It's not just the idea that he had ideological or personal leanings that guided him in that direction, but you know, the especially if we're talking about in Fatah, the balance of power inside of the ruling coalition uh, was uh, shifting in favor of class and bureaucratic interests that were vested in um, the proposals and ideas that later materialized into the Fatah project. But even if we look beyond economic public policies, Mark, um, the issue of Manabir, I mean, one of the fascinating things that I've come across as I was researching this book uh, in the memoirs of Sami Sharaf, uh, one of Abdel um, Nasser's uh, principal aides, uh, is idea, I mean, he shows minutes, meeting minutes, uh, from the late 1960s, uh, after, I believe after the 1967 war, uh, maybe a year later or shortly after, uh, minutes in which they were discussing proposals about putting together Manabir inside of the um, ASU, inside the Arab Socialist Union, which eventually Sadat adopted and which eventually uh, led the way to the return of uh, multi-party politics in Egypt or um, or under the hegemony of the ruling party, uh, eventually the National Democratic Party. Uh, but that is to say, you know, I think the, the book tries to emphasize the fact that a lot of structural conditions were guiding uh, what Sadat was doing, was guiding Sadat, especially on that path towards in Fatah. The, the, the specific um, 
details of the policies and the way that he went about it. I mean, here is where so that's input comes in. But generally speaking, I think we can't um, deny the structural realities that were guiding this process. Uh, and obviously, when I say guiding this process, I'm also talking about guiding the choices that came after the pursuit of Infitah, because as opposition emerged to Infitah, um, particularly on the left side of the spectrum, uh, inside the student movement, inside uh, labor currents, um, this was a major impetus for empowering the Islamist movement. And the book lingers on this point and details, um, you know, all the narratives and what they tell us about Sadat's relationship with Islamists, the decision to open political currents on the university campus, uh, the political opening towards the Brotherhood. Uh, not only does it detail uh, a lot of these narratives, but it actually talks about the politics of detailing these narratives mm -hmm. as well, because it's also a very contentious issue in the, um, uh, in the contemporary moment. But it definitely talks about how uh, the, uh, the impetus towards empowering Islamist movements was ultimately tied to uh, the uh, struggling um, to push and advance the denazarization initiatives, especially on the economic front. Uh, but of course, the foreign policy and ec the economy, you can't separate those two, as you know. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I think the, the um, one of the things the book really emphasizes is Sadat's uh, lax attitude towards the Brotherhood and towards the Islamist movement uh, for much of the 1970s was a key factor that allowed uh, the partnership between the Brotherhood and uh, what is known as the Gamaat Islamiyah for the Gamaat, uh, the Islamic groups at the universities to grow mm -hmm. for the revival of the Brotherhood to actually happen, which is something that is uh, very much kind of put in detail by uh, uh, my really good friend and colleague, Abdullah Larian and yeah. his uh, seminal book, Answering the Call, which is something we don't do often, Mark. I always joke about this. We are not answering calls. We're just text messaging all the time, <laughs> not enough answering the calls. That's um, fine. But, but so Hashem, the, so the title of the book comes out of this, uh, you have a very nice description of this, that for, for Sadat, he wanted politics to be structured around identity instead of around class for very specific reasons. So explain that a, a little more detail. I mean, I think he wanted, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily that he was engaging in engineering the political field. I think there's something to be said about the laws of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. I think in the short run, he was interested in undermining the leftist currents and by that, I'm talking about the uh, Marxist leftist currents uh, and uh, affiliates of the communist movements and those of them who are tied in the student movement and those of them who are knocking on the doors of uh, the, the uh, labor movement, uh, as, um, as well as the Nasserist left uh, and his own way of, of contending with them and undermining them was opening political states towards Islamists. Uh, I think the if Sadat had it his own way, he would have loved to keep the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamist student movement under his own wing inside of the ruling party, uh, the ASU at the time, uh, under the security apparatus, but he, he couldn't. And I think uh, the fact that he couldn't had huge implications for how politics got structured in the decades that followed. I always say, I mean, in the book, um, you know, the, I always revisit this idea, which is the fact that if you, to understand the contemporary asymmetries between leftist currents and Islamist currents, you have to understand how is it that Sadat was not able to get out of the Islamists, what Abdel Nasser got out of the left, especially the communist movement, which is their own autonomy and their organizational autonomy which is something that Sadat felt, uh, you know, failed at. And, uh, and uh, that failure had major consequences that allowed the Muslim Brotherhood to rebuild itself, but more relevantly to rebuild itself as an autonomous political organization that was not beholden and uh, vulnerable to the same state interventions uh, that later uh, started um, uh, constraining and limiting uh, formal political groups. Uh, and that's, of course, a uh, somewhat of a familiar story 
Uh, and if you're comparing it to what happens on the left side of the spectrum, I think Altagamo's own story is, uh, is, very, is very informative. And it shows you that even if you have well-meaning oppositionist currents who are pushing against the status quo, eventually the institutional framework in which they're operating and the absence of autonomy is something that will um, you know, hurt them uh, in the long run and that will undermine their political fortunes something the Brotherhood didn't have to uh, deal with, which uh, is in large part a product of um, the political jockeying that Sadat was doing during the 1970s, of course, before the fallout that he has with right. the Brotherhood in the in um, around the late 1970s, as well as the Islam, Islamic student um, groups or the Islamic uh, groups at the universities. Well, let's um, go back now to talk about very specifically about this kind of tragic story about the government and the left uh, more generally. Um, and why, why did why did they fall into this trap? Well, uh, I mean, it's 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 um, it's important to to highlight here that um, Al-Tagamma and the left was never afforded the same permissive environment that Islamist currents enjoyed in the 1970s. Um, the underground communists were sidelined, if not crushed by uh, different waves of regime repression, which continued until the very end of Sadat's rule. Um, the sectors of the left that were allowed to participate in politics were contained inside of Al-Tagamma. Uh, which, of course, as you uh, as your questions allude uh, to, it was vulnerable to co-optation and state intervention in the long run because of the highly unfavorable and legal and political framework in which um, it, it operated. Uh, and I just want to emphasize the point that, uh, and the idea that um, much like there was a very strong Islamist current on university campuses, uh, which the Muslim Brotherhood's older leadership that got released uh, from prison by Sadat, they took advantage of uh, that Islamist currents on university camp uh, campuses, uh, and it was critical to its efforts to rebuild itself. Just like there was uh, that strong Islamist currents, there was in fact a strong leftist current that could have provided the basis mm -hmm. for a strong leftist political organization. So that didn't happen. Why in not? Part because... So uh, in part because the underground left that tried at various points to roam university campuses and recruit was completely crushed. So in that sense, Sadat preempted the possibility of something akin to the old leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood to emerge um, and to try to aggregate and organize the incredible energy and activism uh, that was exuded by various leftist movements and elements on university campuses. But, um, but it's not just that. Uh, I think the starting point uh, for the communist movements in the early 1970s, or the starting movement for the left, I should say, in the early 1970s was um, pretty bad. Uh, and that is because, as the book details uh, points to, um, the communist parties that existed before the 1970s and could have played an important role later on in, 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 uh, under Sadat, they dissolved themselves under pressure from Nasser who um, got them to capitulate completely and join the Arab Socialist Union. And as I talk uh, about this issue in chapter four, many of them served inside the Vanguard uh, organization. Uh, so the decision for the solution um, and to enter into the embrace of Abdel Nasser was critical because it meant that on the eve of Sadat's Fatah, there was no real credible and organized political force that was prepared to unify the dispersed opposition to Sadat's economic and relatedly his foreign policy project. So, um, you know, there's so much to be said about the disunity uh, that the decision uh, to solve the resolve in 1965, introduced in subsequent waves of the communist movement and inside the left more generally under Sadat and even under Mubarak, because it created a huge rift 
between many younger activists and the older leaders who were seen as complicit in handing the communist movement over to Abdel Nasser. So the moment that Fagamo emerges on the political scene, which actually included, but wasn't limited to, uh, some uh, elements of the second wave of the communist uh, movement, the people who um, or the part of the leadership that dissolved themselves or made the call to dissolve themselves in 1965, uh, when that happened, uh, many of the younger communist activists uh, just did not want anything to do with it and it speaks to the disunity and fragmentation that happens at that moment uh, in time. So they struggled a great deal, but also more generally in the long run, there are two issues to highlight here. The institutional, uh, institutional and legal framework under which Al-Tagamma was operating it was operating under a framework in which the state had free reign to be able to intervene in their affairs uh, to the extent that uh, the legal framework allows uh, the uh, ruling party uh, to be able to monitor and uh, surveil the activities of licensed political parties. They're also able to exert pressures on them to dissuade uh, donors from uh, contributing, uh, contributing to them. So um, obviously this is an important part of the story and the book talks about that. But I think the context of the 1980s mark was very, very important, especially the aftermath of the 1987 election in which uh, the Brotherhood, when it contested the election in partnership with uh, the former, former Socialist Labor Party and later the Islamic Labor uh, Party, as well as the Liberal Socialists or when it entered the elections as part of that coalition and effectively became the biggest uh, bloc in parliament, that introduced uh, a great deal of disunity inside of the Tagamo and created a lot of resistance to um, the currents that wanted to uh, wage a credible opposition to uh, Mubarak's uh, economic liberalization project, which Obviously, these currents saw as part and parcel of Sadat's uh, right-wing administration, even if uh, uh, Mubarak is claiming that he's going to slow down in Fatah and, uh, you know, uh, create a rapprochement with the rest of the Arab world after things went south, after the Camp David Accords. But at any rate, these people felt um, were completely marginalized and defeated by a current uh, that wanted to align the party with Mubarak out of fear of the so-called Islamist threat that was emerging and, uh, and wanted to build a coalition with the ruling party in the name of uh, resisting the encroachment and the threat uh, of the, um, of the uh, Islamist, uh, of the Islamist movements. And what's interesting is that there were uh, there was a lot that was being, uh, you know, the, the, there was something to be said about all the debates, the ideological debates that were taking place at the time and uh, the theories that were being developed about how uh, the Islamists uh, themselves are a much graver threat to uh, the left uh, compared to the uh, right-wing administration that is, uh, that is ruling, that is uh, occupying the presidency. And that was definitely a big part of the story of the shift uh, that happens inside, um, inside of Al-Tagamma. And it also marks the rise of uh, a cultural left, uh, right. if, if for lack of a better term, one that was heavily engaged in ideational and cultural wars with Islamist currents and intellectuals, um, a cultural left that rose at the expense of the left that once centered itself around the factory shop, uh, the university campus, and frankly, public squares. Uh, and uh, Al-Tagamma, I think, is a case in point, uh, if we want to understand the process by which that transformation uh, happened. And that that is seems like one of the critical moments, which obviously we can see the long-term ramifications of that, because obviously you're not just describing what happens in the 1970s, you're showing how those choices then structure politics right up to the present day, and that, you know, anti-Islamist left 
as opposed to a uh, left that's primarily advocating around class and labor issues really is a, a fundamental shift. A fundamental shift. And once you shift it to a political field, which the voice of the opposition became dominated uh, by the presence of uh, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and the gains that they were making in uh, successive electoral contests, you ended up having a situation where it's not only um, it's not only the Brotherhood who are uh, shifting the the uh, national agenda, if you will, by bringing question of the religious identity of the state front and center in public debates, but also the left mm -hmm. uh, and the transformation of the left and the rise of that anti-Islamist cultural left, if you will. Uh, I think they were also, their priorities and their agendas were shifting and they were, um, and uh, it kind of speaks to the long-term consequences of uh, the decisions that were made in the 19th century. And here's the big irony is that Sadat was really trying to encapsulate the left inside of al Tagamma, And he never reaps the benefits of this project when he was alive. The benefits of that project and the ability to co-opt al Tagamma materializes a decade later, hmm. very much arguably as a result of uh, the decisions that Sadat made, the policies that Sadat followed. Uh, which is what he wanted, but it never really materializes. So it kind of speaks to the idea that we're studying slow moving processes here and um, we can't really get a handle on them without uh, taking history or at least light history. The historians would kind of um, cringe if they heard talking about the 1980s as history, but, um, yeah. but the idea that you, uh, without taking history uh, seriously, and um, uh, without uh, engaging in um, that uh, endeavor that takes seriously the role of institutional legacies, path dependence, slow moving processes, um, we, uh, we, we won't be able to actually detect uh, these uh, important, um, uh, important features of uh, political transformation in Egypt and how the political field uh, came to form uh, the way it did. So that is to say, this is kind of a, a very a casual way of saying that the fans and the critics of historical institutionalism will find a lot to grapple with in this book. So, but, but history doesn't matter always and forever. And one of the things which is interesting is that in the 2000s, you do see a resurgence of labor activism, but almost entirely cut off from the formal parties of the left. Yes, absolutely. And it speaks to the idea that you have, I mean, this is not like, you know, the title of the book, you know, talks about classless politics, but it's not a story about how uh, class-based demands are completely absent right. or uh, that they're, uh, that they don't exist in society. They do. As a matter of fact, the story is not about the absence, the conspicuous uh, absence of uh, class-based demands and, 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 and the need for class analysis. It talks about the way in which national politics dulls these types of uh, of demands and uh, and calls for having uh, that mo shifting towards that mode of politics and contesting uh, putting this uh, putting the states as economic public policies economic liberalization managing the costs of economic uh, liberalization putting these issues front and center a lot of these efforts are being dulled and they're being dulled by national politics because national politics evolved in such a way where questions about national identity, about the religious identity of the state, about these, for, you know, to put them in more casual terms, these culture wars, uh, they, um, they dominate as a result of uh, legacies from the past decades. But uh, obviously when you look at what is uh, happening in Egyptian society, what is happening at the level of contentious politics, what is even happening inside of many of these uh, licensed political parties, and even inside of the Muslim Brotherhood, there is this yearning for a different type of politics, but it's very much uh, being um, sidelined, being pushed against, being resisted uh, by um, uh, the uh, leaderships that have uh, 
thrived uh, inside of the, the system that developed in the 1990s and uh, the wars, the um, ideational conflicts and identity conflicts that emerge in the 1980s and 1990s. Well, this is a book that's clearly going to be studied by uh, everyone who works on Egypt and the Middle East, and I think more broadly, hopefully, in, uh, within comparative politics. We've been speaking to Hisham Salam of Stanford University about his new book, Classless Politics. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined by Jeff Colgan, a professor at Brown University and the director of the Climate Solutions Lab, author of the recent book, Partial Hegemony, Oil, Politics, and International Order. Jeff, it's great to have you back on the program. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me on. So a lot has been happening in oil politics and international order uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, Can you tell us basically what's happened and what you think is significant about it? Well, recently, uh, OPEC had a meeting where they announced, uh, or OPEC Plus, I should say, had a meeting where uh, they announced in Vienna, where OPEC headquarters are, uh, a 2 million uh, barrels a day cut for uh, production quotas. Um, And that came at a time, of course, where, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia is basically signaling that they were supporting uh, Russia uh, and um, because both of those are the, the two leading members of OPEC plus and that has really got some people in Washington talking and uh, specifically President Joe Biden along with a lot of other uh, congressional leaders thinking about reevaluating the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Now before we talk about the details of this, uh, could you explain what is OPEC plus? what's plus about it? Yeah, so uh, OPEC uh, is a group of about uh, 13 or 14, its membership changes over time, uh, countries that, uh, and that organization started in 1960. Uh, OPEC Plus started in 2016 when it added Russia and uh, a number of uh, former Soviet Union states um, that are not officially members of OPEC, but they cooperate on a sort of ad hoc basis, but ongoing basis. Uh, to try to do what OPEC has always tried to do, which is to constrain world oil supply and raise the price of oil. Um, But as you know well, um, in my book, Partial Hegemony, I make the argument that OPEC itself has not functioned very well as a cartel, and it might be a cartel in the legal sense of the term, meaning that it's a a group of producers that try to collude uh, together. But it is not a cartel in an economic sense, in uh, in the sense that they don't collude very well. They, they have a, a real enforcement problem. So they make these agreements in Vienna that say, okay, we're going to produce X amount of oil, but then the member countries uh, go back and decide, uh, well, how much do we really want to produce? And very often they decide to produce more than their quota. In fact, uh, in the analysis I did, I showed sort of on a month by month basis, they cheat 96% of the time uh, between you know, 1982 and 2009 was the analysis that I did. So it's really striking how much cheating they do. And so when they announce a big cut like this of 2 million barrels a day, just to give you some context, of that 2 million, 1 million barrels a day was a quota that they, the members weren't even using, right? Because there's a bunch of countries that had production levels that were lower than their quota to begin with. And so uh, that 2 million does not translate into uh, a cut of supply of 2 million barrels a day. Um, half of that, as I said, is our, was already overhang. And, uh, and the other half, you know, it remains to be seen what the compliance will be like. Uh, the most important signal, though, from that discussion in Vienna was really that Saudi Arabia was going to reduce its production. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, uh, markets respond to. And we saw the price of oil go up uh, that day as a consequence. And do you expect that um, we'll see significant cheating and non-compliance this time as well? It seems to follow from your analysis. Yeah, I mean, cheating is sort of a, a pretty regular feature. Uh, and, you know, there are a couple of members here uh, of this group, uh, namely the really big and wealthy producers. So uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, uh, and then Russia itself. Uh, it's not very wealthy, but it's it's a big producer. Those ones have enough kind of leeway in their production that they can leave some spare capacity. They don't have to, to run all out. 
But the other members of this group, think of countries like Nigeria, Venezuela, Iraq. These countries are mostly producing all out all the time because they need the money, right? And they're not interested in making cuts for some, you know, potential uh, price increase. And so uh, I expect that many of those countries will continue to produce to the full extent that they can, regardless of what decisions are announced. Iraq has already said that they can't afford uh, to cut their production. Yeah, uh, and that does not surprise me, given uh, the state of that country. Yeah. So the defenders of the OPEC plus decision uh, pointed to the fear that um, that the oil price was going to really collapse below the um, below what they needed for their budget uh, sustainability. And others, uh, uh, particularly the Saudis, um, have been accusing the United States of starting this by going to the, to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to get the price down. What do you make of all of that in terms of the economics of it? Does it make sense? Well, I mean, historically, prices, uh, of course, oil price prices vary a lot. Uh, they were, you know, down to thirty dollars a barrel just a few years ago, and up uh, well over a hundred uh, not long ago either. So, um, the the idea we're now running, you know, Brent oil is just over ninety dollars a barrel at the moment. Uh, West Texas Intermediate is just a few dollars behind that, and you know, the idea that we're uh, that the Saudis or others are not able to meet their budget. I mean, there's a real question here about, well, maybe your budget is out of whack because there there is a, a, a sense where the historical, you know, long run average is actually lower than where we are today. Uh, and so uh, I think it's quite understandable that the Biden administration went to the SBR. They had uh, good political reasons for doing so because they were concerned about gasoline prices, but they also had a, a strategic reason to do so, which is the whole idea of a petroleum reserve was built for a time when the U.S. is a major net importer of oil. And guess what? The U.S. isn't a, net, a major net importer anymore. Uh, in fact, most of the time it's, it's a net exporter. Uh, and so, you know, times have changed is the bottom line. Uh, but, you know, the overall sense that I have about this, and maybe this gets into the broader kind of U.S.-Saudi relationship is that the Saudis and maybe others in, in the, the Persian Gulf have really underestimated um, the degree to which this signal right at the, the you know, during, during the war in Ukraine um, hits a nerve in Washington and comes, you know, on, on the tails of a series of other irritants in the relationship, uh, most notably the, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi and also uh, the ongoing war in Yemen and where the Saudis have done things that the United States really doesn't like. And uh, there comes a point where U.S. politicians are, a quote Bob Mendez, uh, a U.S. Senator from New Jersey saying enough is enough. Uh, and there's a real sense that there could be a rupture in the relationship and that I'm not sure that the Saudis have fully digested and appreciated that the, the, the risk of that is, is right on their doorstep. Yeah, that's definitely what I what I wrote the other day. Um, and, and I think there's definitely something that feels different this time. You know, putting it into broader perspective, I mean, where, what you're really hearing or feeling is almost 1973-74 vibes uh, back with the original um, OPEC uh, boycott and price shock and everything else. What do you make of that comparison uh, that's kind of out there, this idea that this is comparable to 73? And, uh, you know, is it? Yeah, it's uh, it's really worth putting today's uh, situation in that larger historical context, right? This is a you know relationship, the U.S.-Saudi relationship that goes back to 1945 uh, or even earlier, and uh, it's been through a lot of ups and downs, and it's been glued together in a sense by this continuing strategic uh, incentive to cooperate uh, over oil and oil security. Uh, and so there have been some big hiccups uh, like the 1973 embargo or even the 2001 you know, 9-11 attacks uh, where there were you know, serious worries about the relationship coming apart. Uh, and time and again, uh, leaders on both sides have worked to repair that relationship. Uh, and so, you know, we should understand that that often happens. But what might be different about this situation is that, you know, unlike 1973, where the Saudi king, who was King Faisal at the time, 
was actually very reluctant to join the oil embargo. And it was others, right, Iraq and Kuwait and others that were really pushing for the embargo. Um, you know, as soon as that embargo was over, which was actually just a matter of weeks, uh, was the official embargo, then King Faisal worked very hard uh, to repair the relationship. There were a couple of joint commissions between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to make sure that some of the financial flows uh, that were coming from the United States to Saudi Arabia were, you know, recycled. They were called a petrodollar recycling back into the U.S. economy in various ways. And so there was real effort by Saudi Arabia to, to patch that up. And I'm not seeing signals yet from the Saudi Arabia uh, at the moment that there's sort of any sense that patching up is something that they need to do. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure that there's a real recognition that the, the relationship has been damaged in the same way. And so um, there is a question mark here about whether uh, this relationship can weather this particular storm, uh, especially since uh, the relationship between Crown Prince uh, MBS and President Biden seems to be pretty frosty. Uh, it, it, there's there's not a lot of good personal rapport between. Back in uh, '73, um, we we now know through through diplomatic histories uh, like uh, uh, like um, uh, Victor McFarland's book and uh, various memoirs um, that at the time Henry Kissinger and others were actually discussing sending in the Marines and seizing the oil and that sort of thing. Uh, you think the Saudis would like there to be uh, an international norm um, against uh, the seizure of territory? Yeah, you'd think, uh, especially in the wake of, of 1992, where, mm -hmm. where the Iraqis were, you know, knocking on their door, uh, that they would be very sensitive uh, to that. Um, but I think, you know, Victor McFarland's work is fantastic. I'd also uh, point out Rachel Bronson's work, Thicker uh, Than Oil, uh, you know, pointing out, for instance, little details about the 1973 embargo that, uh, for instance, the Saudis continued to sell oil to the U.S. military. Right, uh, because of course the U.S. military was in Vietnam, and, and top secret Saudi too. Government. Not a word to yeah. read of it. Exactly, top secret sales. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the U.S. military didn't run out of uh, of oil or oil products, uh, and so there were these efforts to maintain the relationship, which seem quite different than today's uh, situation, where the those efforts don't seem to be uh, present. What about, I, I guess, last question, what about then the oil industry itself in terms of differences between now and 73, in terms of who the major producers are, major consumers, and especially uh, maybe linking it back to your current position um, and uh, the last chapter of your book, um, how does this interact with uh, concerns about climate change and what were already pressures towards diversification away from oil economies? It's a great question. And we're sort of in this odd moment, this transition moment where, uh, you know, the United States is a major uh, oil producer and exporter, so it doesn't need a lot of uh, uh, Persian Gulf oil. And Europe still needs the oil, but is looking towards a future where it doesn't need the oil and is trying to get there. Uh, and so it's trying to, of course, decarbonize its whole economy. Uh, and potentially, of course, North America and even the rest of the world will, will follow uh, and, and try to do the same in terms of decarbonizing. So there's the sense that um, that's where many economies want to go, but for the moment, they still need the oil. Uh, and so that, I think, colors the relationship. And the, the you know, the petrostates, particularly in the Persian Gulf, should be thinking about, well, what's our situation, what's our game plan for the long term, because our most valuable product uh, is continues to be valuable today and will be for at least another decade, but not forever. And so uh, what kind of political relationships do we want to have and start growing at the moment mm -hmm. to, to anticipate that moment? And um, it's not clear that they um, have a, a, a very solid game plan in that regard. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm sure that this uh, situation will continue to develop um, and uh, it's been really helpful. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Each week this fall, uh, we're talking with some of the authors of chapters in the book, 
Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings, edited by myself, Jillian Schwedler, and Sean Yom. Uh, this week, we're going to talk to the authors of Chapter 5, Militaries, Militias, and Violence. Uh, the authors of the chapter are Holger, Holger Albrecht, Kevin Kohler, Devorah Manikin, and Ora Zekli. Uh, Devorah and Ora have joined us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about the chapter and what you see as the main developments in the in the study of uh, organized political violence um, since the Arab uprisings. Um, Ora, would you like to go first? Sure. And thank you so much for having us on, Mark. Um, so I think one of the key takeaways for the four of us, and I should say part of what was really fun at least for me, and I think my co-authors would agree with me on this, about writing this chapter was that each of us comes to the study of organized political violence in the Middle East from a slightly different perspective. So, you know, Holger and Kevin are more focused on the state. I'm much more focused on non-state actors. I would say Devorah has maybe a more holistic perspective, certainly more, more than I do. So it gave us a jumping off point for a conversation about organized violence more broadly. And where we landed, I felt was somewhere really interesting, which was the sense that actually thinking about violent organizations or organizations that uh, conduct violence for whom like violence is their profession is maybe more analytically useful or gets us somewhere really interesting in the Middle East, as opposed to treating state militaries and non-state actors as completely siloed theoretically, such that we can't use the theories we might under, use to understand one to understand the other. So the way we ended up organizing our analysis was looking at agency, ideology, and organization for both state actors and non-state military actors. So around agency, you know, we, we essentially asked, okay, who's driving the bus? Right. What is the relationship of the non-state actor or the state military with other authorities? So, you know, like asking questions around like civil military relations, military defection, which in some ways also applies to non-state actors, particularly those who have, you know, foreign sponsors or patrons that they that they have to take orders from around organization. You know, we ask questions around what does recruitment look like, promotion, cohesion, again, on on both sides of the state and non-state divide. And there really is a lot of diversity there in terms of uh, how each of that sort of, each of those actors um, is organized, what their relationship is to, you know, sort of like other entities within the larger organization or within the state. Uh, and I think that gave us some really fruitful grounds for comparison. So Devorah, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about these distinctions then and what is and what isn't useful? Sure. So first to echo Aura's point about how uh, the diverse sets of expertise that each of us brought was uh, led to a really fruitful collaboration. Um, and one thing that became clear throughout our discussions was that in general, the uh, literature in this field, um, there are two distinctions that are uh, taken for granted, we think. And one is um, that you have work on uh, military organizations or actors on the one side and then work on violence on the other. Um, and then in addition, the second distinction is work on state militaries versus work on non-state violent actors. Um, and to a large degree, these two distinctions overlap. So much of the work on militaries in uh, the Middle East and North Africa focuses, as Ora said, on its organizational features. So who is recruited? What is the relationship with the state? What is the structure, et cetera? Whereas work on non-state actors has really focused on uh, violence, patterns of violence, violence against civilians, et cetera. And so a key uh, insight for us as we worked on this chapter was how much commonality there was between state and non-state actors, both when it comes to organization and also when it comes to activity, be that violent activity or nonviolent activity, such as upholding governance. Um, and so the divide between these organizations is in many ways analytically limiting, um, sometimes potentially obscuring patterns of military violence and how that uh, varies. And at the same time, patterns of kind of non-state politics and governance, uh, rebel governance, et cetera, on the non-state uh, side. So um, we think that seeing all these various groups, as Ora said, as professional wielders of violence opens up a whole set of questions, both organizational and violence related. 
Um, so for example, what explains patterns of recruitment across these organizations? What are their consequences? What are the relationships between armed actors and the state, um, between armed actors and populations? Uh, how do populations view these various actors? And of course, um, the you know, patterns of violence uh, as they vary across these groups um, and the relationships between patterns of violence and organizational features. So, Aura, one of the one of the sections that uh, you have said that you were the most uh, happy with was the one about ideologies. And um, tell us how that fits into the overall uh, literature and uh, your take on on what we've learned. Sure. So, you know, when we talk about ideology, or or when ideology is addressed around both state militaries and non-state military actors across the region. Um, Ideology is often treated as sort of secondary, certainly for state militaries. Um, but for non-state military actors, there's often a lot of, um, I don't know, the, the group's ideological project sometimes ends up getting conflated with like the military tactics that they use. And there's, you know, like there's some sort of conceptual squishiness around how ideology works and how much it matters. So one of the things we tried to do in the chapter was to map out the ideological distinctions between some of these organizations. And where we landed was there's kind of three big buckets in the literature, which is the nationalist or ethno-communal organizations, the leftist organizations, and the Islamist organizations. And then there's a lot of different like sub-flavors mm -hmm. in each of those three ideological buckets. And also, of course, you know, there's a lot of competition and there's also a lot of overlap between them. But one of the things, again, that at least for me was really interesting about thinking these ideas through with folks who study state militaries was thinking about how ideology, how the ideological orientation of the state or otherwise can also shape how militaries uh, behave and, and the ideological identity or, or not uh, of state militaries as, in addition to non-state actors. Um, I found that to be a really interesting part of the work that we did in the chapter. And that is, you know, kind of this ongoing debate between ideology and interest and organization. Um, and it's interesting how this ends up being a major theme of the literature since 2011. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the questions that I think has become increasingly important especially in light of the, you know, the protest movements that erupted across the region in 2019, for instance, is this sort of this constant question of, okay, what's the military going to do, right? Mm -hmm. Protests break out. We saw what happened uh, in different countries in 2011 and how that shaped the outcomes of the Arab Spring uprisings. And so this question of like, what, what does the military actually think? Um, what is their ideological orientation? What's their relationship with the state? That's obviously a, a core question of the past decade. But again, I also think it's it's interesting to try and ask those same questions of non-state and proto-state actors that are in many ways much more autonomous mm -hmm. than state militaries, but still have to listen to somebody else, right? They don't have complete and absolute agency. Everybody's beholden to somebody in one way or another. And so the intersection of those three characteristics, how much agency do you have? How are you organized? And what's your ideological orientation? Why do you do what you do? Uh, I think that gives us some interesting traction on some of the big questions of the past decade. Uh, Devara, why don't we go and look at uh, a, a few more of like the specific research clusters uh, that you observed within the literature and which ones that you found the most interesting? Yeah, so um, one area that I think is interesting to think about is where uh, work in the past few years um, in this region has actually contributed to uh, the broader comparative literature on uh, violence and um, violent conflict and violent actors. And I think um, one uh, strand of work that has, has really informed the broader field is um, looking at uh, violent actors and militaries in particular as um, or opening the black box of these organizations, so to speak. So looking at them as not these unitary actors, but as um, you know, composed of various factions with different patterns of loyalty. Um, and this of course was demonstrated very clearly in the reactions of various militaries to the Arab uprisings and um, patterns of 
of, uh, of loyalty patterns of defections, et cetera. And uh, there's a number of interesting studies that have come out from this area in the Palestinian context, in the Egyptian context, in the Israeli context, Lebanese, that looks at actually analysis of dissent within the military. So rather than assuming that violent actors will you know, perform violence always, or that it's enough that there's uh, that the state uh, has, um, you know, controls its military and uh, has this general interest in preserving its uh, pres preserving its rule um, and preserving its security, and that that's kind of sufficient to have uh, the agents at the bottom carry out the violence that's expected of them. Um, and we see that actually that's not the case. So actors sometimes underproduce violence, there's dissent, there's disobedience, and of course, sometimes overproduce violence. So attention to these that principal agent dynamics, socialization dynamics uh, within militaries that was enabled by uh, events in the past decade, I think has really opened up a lot of interesting avenues for research about these uh, organizations. And of course, there's quite similar dynamics among insurgencies as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, both in the, I guess, in different levels of analysis, right? Mm -hmm. So whether you look at organizations that are uh, fragmented even across countries, within countries, um, et cetera. Then there's, uh, you know, one of the other areas where, as you were, we were discussing before, where there's been uh, kind of a, a really interesting new literature where I think Middle East uh, scholarship has contributed to the broader literature is on this issue of rebel governance and, uh, and you know, the way that organized violence fits into those patterns of, of shifts within organizations. You know, I think one of the things that is going to be really exciting to see in the developing literature uh, around the politics of the Middle East and organized violence in the Middle East uh, down the line is the questions around things like rebel governance. What are the civil military relations of non-state military actors? Uh, there's all of this like wonderful literature about um you know, like governing institutions, for instance, on the on the state side. Um, how do we then apply that to what's happening on the non-state side, and and where where can that take us? So there's a very well developed rebel governance literature in civil war studies, more more generally, and I think in the Middle East context, that's particularly interesting. That's a really interesting set of questions, and then there are also questions that are raised by the work on non-state actors that I think can also be interestingly applied to what's happening inside the state, right? How do they, how do these actors evolve over time? And also what happens when the dog catches the fire truck, right? Like what happens when non-state actors get what they want, right? And are able to establish proto-states or maybe even <laughs> like become part of the government. Uh, and there's so there's really interesting work that's developed on those questions in the last 10 years. And I'm I'm really excited to see where all of that goes down the line. And Aura, what about uh, the literature on, on women in conflict and uh, both the, the effects of these conflicts on women and, the, um, and their participation in these different types of organized political violence? Sure. There is, of course, a rich literature in the study of civil war, for instance, and the study of armed conflict more broadly on the participation of women in both state and non-state militaries. The, you know, what are the conditions under which a different, a given armed force is willing to recruit women into its ranks? In the Middle East, there's been a lot of really interesting work done on the Kurdish armed forces in this regard, particularly the PKK, as well as the Kurdish forces fighting in Syria. And of course, there's also a lot of work on the particular gender violence that is pointed towards women by certain actors for ideological reasons, ISIS being one of the most notorious examples. But of course, they're they're not the only one, uh, although there are also important questions about the gendered effects of war on men, right? The ways in which men and boys are uh, very heavily targeted for violence by both state and non-state military actors in the context of armed conflict. Devorah, did you have anything to add on that? I would just add that um, in general, militaries are, or violent organizations are very gendered organizations, uh, even when there are no women in them, right? So questions of how 
um, constructions of masculinity are used to recruit combatants, to socialize combatants, to produce uh, violence in general, um, sexual violence in particular, I think uh, that's something that we could actually use more uh, work on in political science and in Middle East politics, what this uh, means to construct masculinity through the use of uh, violence kind of at all levels of, uh, of these organizations is a question that I find very interesting. Great, thank you. Uh, Orab and Tavora, we've been talking about the chapter Militaries, Militias, and Violence, which you wrote along with Holger Albrecht and Kevin Kohler. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having us.